Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, July 29th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, an update on COVID-19. There was a lot of news this week from the CDC's updated mask guidance to new information about the vaccines and progress on antiviral drugs. Then STAT's Kate Sheridan will join us to discuss a roiling week in the field of microbiomics, one that has seeded skepticism over whether tinkering with gut bacteria can eventually treat a host of diseases. We'll start with some quick takes on This Week in Biotech, but first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Houston Methodist Hospital. Dr. James Musser and his colleagues at the Houston Methodist Research Institute sequenced 20,453 specimens from COVID-19 patients starting in March 2020. Visit the Leading Medicine blog on HoustonMethodist.org to learn more. What would an episode of The Read Out Loud be if it didn't begin with a look at Biogen, Adam and Damien's favorite uh, biotech (laughs) company and favorite drug to talk about, uh, the Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm. And you guys had a great story this week along with Nick Florco about Billy Dunn, the the regulator kind of at the heart of um, the Aduhelm controversy. Um, What did you guys find out about him as you were reporting this? Well, what's interesting is we learned quite a bit because for anyone who's paid attention to this and might have cursorily Googled Billy Dunn, you'd find that there's very little information about him on the internet. And so that was kind of the mountain that we were gazing up at um, as we embarked on this because, you know, Meg, as you mentioned, he does seem to have emerged as really the key person at FDA um, who Biogen identified as being, you know, willing to embrace their read of the very controversial Aduhelm data and that that set in motion the process by which the drug was eventually approved. And I think the narrative around the time of the approval and and based on his comments at a public meeting uh, last year was that, you know, he was really drinking the Kool-Aid, that this guy, you know, maybe was kind of a mark for Biogen. Maybe he, you know, kind of went over his skis or listened too closely to patient advocates at the expense of the kind of rigorous view of data Uh, that one might expect from the FDA. But what I thought was interesting reporting it out, and we talked to quite a few people who've worked with him, whether at FDA or um, at companies that have been before him or or in patient advocacy groups that have likewise met with him. And what almost everybody said was that he built this reputation as a very stern and rigorous regulator, someone who demanded very clean, very compelling data from treatments that might win approval before even considering them in a sense that, you know, it, it, gave him a lot of respect among his colleagues at FDA. And in some cases, it really frustrated or even angered patient advocates who thought that, you know, for diseases like ALS, for example, where there are so few options that he should maybe ease up on that standard. And so in those conversations that I think we all had, I don't know, you can speak to this, eventually you'd get to, so what do you think of the Aduhelm approval? And people seemed kind of baffled. A lot of people said, like, that's not the Billy Dunn I know. I remain confused as to how he was won over by this data set from Biogen when I know him as a person who takes a completely different approach to regulating new drugs. Yeah. And I think, you know, trying to answer the question of sort of why 
Billy Dunn embraced the these these very messy uh, Adjuhelm data. It, it, it you know obviously it's impossible to answer that question without hearing from Billy Dunn himself. And unfortunately, you know we 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 obviously asked to speak to him. Uh, you know he declined, and and the FDA declined to to kind of give us any responses to our questions. But again, talking to I think Damien, I think we talked to like more than twenty people for this story. You know and. One thing that several people talked to us about, and they thought that, you know, maybe one of the kind of answers to that question or or his motivation was just his, you know, he had this prior relationship, this prior experience working with Biogen. And, and that goes back to 2016 when Biogen and a partner were developing Spinraza, which is the drug for uh, spinal muscular atrophy. You know, it's a rare inherited disease that affects children. It's you know almost universally fatal in its severest form. And, and Billy Dunn took a very, very active role with Biogen in not only reviewing that drug into record time. They, they reviewed the drug in like three months, um, but also in like the way that the drug was studied. Uh, they took some big risks in that clinical trial uh, of Spinraza. They used a placebo control. Well, they used a sham control, I should say. Not it was not technically placebo, but it was a sham control for that study. You know, you had to convince parents of these kids to sort of go into a study where they might get the sham control. They also did this interim analysis that, you know, that raised the risk of maybe, you know, looking at the data too soon. But it, it I mean, the, the drug worked incredibly well, right? And it's an, it's a, it was a landmark achievement for these patients. And so, you know, did that have a, did that play a role? Did his sort of, you know, his experience and his success, Billy Dunn's success in, in working with Biogen there, did that sort of bleed over into Adjuhelm when Biogen came to him with these, you know, very messy data and said, you know, can we work with you to get this drug approved? And, you know, that was kind of one of the things that, one of the potential motivators that, that people talked to us about. One of the other things that really struck me about your story is people kind of describing Billy Dunn as this guy with a lot of political savvy who is able to um, avoid, you know, any kind of consequences of of unpopular decisions or, or getting on the wrong side of his boss, like Janet Woodcock and the Sarepta Duchenne muscular dystrophy situation. But you also point out that his relationship with Biogen and that meeting that you guys reported on between him and a Biogen executive is likely to be the focus of this OIG investigation that Janet Woodcock has um, requested be undertaken. What's the status of that investigation? You note here that the probe hasn't even been authorized yet. So do we even know if this is going to happen? No, <laughs> in so many words. <laughs> we don't know that. Yeah, yet. I mean, so, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock called for uh, independent federal investigation into this. OIG makes its own decisions. Um, uh, you know, we talking to ex-OIG people, they said that, you know, it's a it's a, a group that takes its independence very seriously, does not like to be cowed and cannot be or likely cannot be pressured. What we may see movement on in the shorter term are some of the congressional investigations that have been called. And those maybe have you know, less teeth than, than a, a full OIG one might. But, um, you know, some of these House committees that are looking into this do have the power to call people before them um, and I think have submitted a list of questions uh, to Biogen. So we might get, you, you know, maybe it wouldn't be consequential, but we might get the theater of Billy Dunn having to appear before a House committee and answer some of these questions that I, I know we would have loved to have asked him. One thing that does seem clear is that at least the investment community is taking cues from what happened with Biogen's Alzheimer's drug to suggest that the FDA has become 
a more favorable regulator, at least in the neuroscience realm. And we, we actually heard questions about that on the Merck call today um, to its new leadership team. This is the first uh, quarter that we've seen the new CEO, Rob Davis, in there uh, after Ken Frazier retired as CEO. Um, also, their new chief of research, who's been there a little longer, um, you know, was asked about this. And he did talk about how Merck is trying to look at um, taking that flexibility on biomarkers and neuroscience. He did not talk about resurrecting any of their Alzheimer's drugs. Um, but other questions they got on the call, of course, were what are they going to look to do in the biotech space in terms of potential business development? Um, and just kind of the overall sentiment there was interesting. They were saying that biotech stocks they think are very fully valued. This is always what pharmaceutical companies say that are looking to buy these things. They're too expensive. It makes it very difficult. And then, of course, they just keep buying them. But there's actually quite a different sentiment in the biotech space. Adam, can you talk about what you're hearing from people there? Well, you know, Meg, you're right. I mean, I think buyers of biotech companies like like Merck, you know, always do complain that valuations are too high. But I mean, in, in this case, I mean, you know, there hasn't really been a lot of M&A. You know, we haven't seen a lot of deals, right, this year. I mean, it's kind of amazing. We're, you know, we're, we're more than halfway through the year. And I think I don't have the exact figures in my head, but like deal making M&A is just is down. And I think that's kind of contributing to kind of this malaise in biotech stocks because you know the performance of biotech stocks are is down. I mean, it's, it's down something like, I think the you know the broadest or the most closely followed index of biotech stocks is down about ten percent year to date, whereas you know the S and P is up like almost twenty percent, right? So I mean, it's really underperforming now. A lot of that is kind of macro, you know. Look, certain sectors get in and out of favor, and and other sectors investors kind of gravitate to other other forms of investment, and I think that's kind of happening. This year, you know, on M and I mean, I think there's a lot of concern that that you know regulators, government regulators like the FTC, are kind of have signaled that they're taking, they may take a harder look at at, at pharma and biotech deals in terms of like you know with anti anti competitive practices. So that might be suppressing deal making as well. But it's yeah, it's kind of been a bad year so far. And you know, just talking anecdotally to healthcare fund managers, you know, again, I mean, not that we're all, you know, not that we're all, you know, going to cry in our beers for these guys, but, you know, they're, they are complaining that they're having a really hard time making money on biotech stocks. And, you know, the other thing that's kind of interesting is that while the sector stock performance is down, you know, money continues to flow, like we've talked about before, you know, just tons of cash, tons of investment coming into the sector, whether it's through startups and IPOs. I mean, IPOs are, again, on record pace this year. It seems like it doesn't matter what stocks do after the IPO. These these things are just keep flowing into the market. And it's it's pretty, rem I think, I think the numbers I was looking at Biopharma Dive, which kind of keeps a track of IPOs. Uh, and and they, I think it's like 56 biotech IPOs year to date. Uh, last year, there were 71. And the thing that's really, one of the things that's interesting about that is that there are more and more companies going public with preclinical data, right? So these are companies that don't even have drugs in human clinical trials yet. This is like the earliest stage of development. And there's just a ton of these companies going to market, coming public. And, you know, it's hard to really know what to do with those kind of companies. I mean, you know, it can take years for them to get into the clinic. But, yeah, here they come. They're publicly traded companies. So I think that's tough for investors to kind of digest once they do reach the market. Yeah, you had a, a really funny retweet of somebody this week about uh, just the dearth of like major phase three clinical trial readouts we've had recently and how we're just going to have to wait like a decade for all of these to come to fruition. 
Yeah, you're right. Because I mean, it, you know, like it or not, I mean, a lot of these biotech stocks, right? They trade on catalysts, right? They trade on these big market moving events, mostly clinical trials. And these companies that, you know, if you're a preclinical company, you, you, we might wait 10 years to know, you know, for them to get get to a point where, you know, you can really tell whether a drug works or not. So it, it I think it frustrates a lot of people. It's also, it's kind of a weird phenomenon. I mean, you just think of a, a company going public so early. How is anyone really supposed to value it before you really know whether the technology works? I mean, it just seems like kind of a weird a weird way to, to fund a business. But I guess people are there willing to fund them, even though it's going to be so long before they know whether the drugs actually work. Yeah. And not that we matter all that much, but like, you know, I get pitched by these companies like, oh, you know, we're going public. We'd love to talk to you and interview our CEO. And and I look at the company and, and like they're all in like this discovery phase and they haven't even identified a lead drug candidate yet. I'm like, well, what am I going to write about? So finally, uh, rounding out what I guess has become a recurring segment here about the goings on in Hollywood Variety reported this week that a production company has acquired the screen rights to Walter Isaacson's The Codebreaker, uh, a book that came out earlier this year that chronicles the work of Jennifer Doudna and the dawn of genome editing. Okay, so who plays Doudna in the movie? Hmm. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it depends on what what direction they want to go. I mean, uh, you know, Catherine Hahn could be available. I'm going I'm going Laura Linney. Laura Linney is my pick. She'd be good. I mean, they could do like um I don't know. I guess they could do. I mean, if they wanted to do like Kate Winslet, you know, I mean, she already played a scientist. She'd be amazing. You know, she did the scientist thing in Contagion. So maybe taking another turn at that. And is, as we understand from HBO's Mayor of Easttown, a very method based actor who would, uh, I assume. True. Maybe she would do some CRISPR herself. <laughs> Maybe so. The real opportunity for stunt casting is George Church, who I assume would be involved yeah. in this. Um, that could be tough. Yeah. Well, we talked about Jason Momoa last week. Maybe he'd be willing to, uh, you know. I think that would. <laughs> I mean, that's after he crispers himself and builds huge super muscles. <laughs> okay, Megan, another one of our sort of perennial favorite topics here on the podcast, all things COVID. What was on uh, top of your mind this week? Well, I feel like it's actually your least favorite topic because you were hoping to leave the pandemic behind, as all of us are, obviously. And some very unwelcome news to you in particular came this week when the CDC said it was again recommending uh, people in areas of higher substantial transmission of the country go back to masking indoors, even if they're fully vaccinated. And this made this me sad. Based, You're right. Definitely. I know. <laughs> I was thinking of you. Um, this is based on new data. They said, Dr. Walensky, the director, said she'd just seen in recent days showing essentially that the viral loads of people who get breakthrough infections, um, who, you know, who are fully vaccinated, um, are similar to people who are not vaccinated, who get infected with the Delta variant, suggesting that even people who are fully vaccinated can be contagious. Um, and this was based, I think, on comparing sort of the CT values, the, the number of um, cycles you need to run on PCR tests in order to detect virus. Um, it was surprising to hear that fully vaccinated people could carry you know, a comparable viral load. And I think just speaks to how powerful 
powerful and scary the Delta variant is and how much virus you really carry with it. We heard it from Celine Gounder last week. Um, And so this is kind of changing the equation, especially for people who have uh, people at home who can't be vaccinated yet, like small kids or people who are vulnerable because they're immune compromised or for any other reason. Um, So it's just, you know, kind of a scary return to a place we didn't think we'd have to go back to. And the CDC is getting a lot of criticism for an about face. But at the same time, you can kind of look at it as Delta was less than 2% of viral samples being sequenced in May when they made that mass guidance, and now it's more than 83%. So as you said, Meg, you know, these these new recommendations are kind of based on county by county, so based on kind of infection rates. And I mean, here in, here in Boston, it's interesting. So I live in Middlesex County in Cambridge, and where apparently we're okay, but I work in Suffolk County, which is where downtown Boston is, and that's a, an area where I'm supposed to wear masks indoors. So I have to think about it, depending on where, as I cross counties, I have to think about my masking. <laughs> yeah. Here in the New York, New Jersey area, we're, like, we're in substantial transmission. So it's back to indoor masking. Well, and all of this kind of dovetails with what has now become, I guess, sort of a perennial debate over whether there will be a need for booster doses mm-hmm. of COVID-19 vaccines. And we saw this week some preprint data from Pfizer that, I mean, it kind of depends on how you want to look at it. If you look at solely the vaccine's ability to prevent even the mildest cases of COVID-19, it appears that the efficacy wanes over time by about 6% each month. But if you look at what is arguably or, or almost certainly the most important data, which is can it keep people from severe disease out of the hospital, etc., that remained at 97% effectiveness uh, at six months. And so, I mean, and it's important to note these data don't include uh, the Delta variant because of the time that they were gathered. It wasn't yet as predominant. And Pfizer has done um, basically lab studies suggesting that that the vaccine should also protect against the Delta variant. But it's just kind of a preview of the conversation that I guess we're just going to keep having because in the mind of you know Pfizer's executives, as they stated multiple times, these data confirm their hypothesis that booster doses, whether at six, eight, or 12 months, whatever it turns out to be, will be a necessity. But to, you know, Meg, as, as you know, from talking to sort of vaccine experts, they look at that 97% severe disease prevention number and say, we're good. Absolutely. I mean, Paul Offit in particular, who's been on the show with us, um, has said what matters for booster shots is protection against severe disease. But somewhat alarmingly, we did hear from Pfizer this week um, when they reported earnings on Wednesday that they are seeing data from Israel suggesting there's a waning in protection against hospitalization as well. We had Albert Borla on CNBC and we can take a listen to um, what he says he's seeing in the data there. We have seen also data from um, Israel, but there is a waning of immunity uh, and that starts impacting what used to be 100% against hospitalization. Now in the six months period, is becoming uh, low 90s, uh, 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 mid to high 80s. And, you know, there's some debate about these data. Not everybody agrees that um, that they are, you know, even being calculated in the right way and that they're real. Um, but, you know, Pfizer has been taking this information, all of it, not just that, to health authorities um, making their case for why they think a booster is needed. They also presented new data 
on Wednesday showing that a third dose of the original vaccine boosts antibody levels against Delta by five times in younger people and by 11 times in older people. And so while they do have a Delta-specific booster that they're developing and that they're bringing into trials in August, they think that the original shot should hold up pretty well. One more thing, guys, I'm curious about is how Moderna is going to look in all of this. We tend to think of Pfizer and Moderna as interchangeable because they're both mRNA vaccines and their original efficacy was so similar in the phase three trials. Moderna's vaccine is three times the dose of Pfizer's. It's 100 micrograms per shot, whereas Pfizer's is 30. And I I just wonder if that is going to play any role in, in how long lasting the immunity from the vaccine turns out to be. And we just haven't seen as much real world data from Moderna because Pfizer has all this great, you know, stuff coming from Israel. I guess my question to you, Meg, is like, how does this play out over the long term? Like, what are we waiting for to kind of make this determination about whether or not booster shots are going to be necessary? Like, is there going to be some big government scientist meeting where they're going to just hash all this out and make a decision? I've been trying to figure that out myself. Um, You know, the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, has pretty regular meetings about this. And the last one was about whether people who are immune compromised need a third, essentially original dose. And and it was pretty clear that they do, but they they basically said until the FDA authorizes a third dose, we kind of can't recommend it. But they were like, we need to try to figure out how because people really need this and they're already doing it. Um, there's certainly going to have to be a more organized procedure for figuring out whether Broadly, the population, or at least people who are more vulnerable, older people, healthcare workers who are just more exposed, uh, people with immune uh, compromised or with compromised immune systems, will need a third shot. Pfizer is going to file for emergency use authorization of the third shot, and so presumably through that process, we're going to see the regulatory mechanisms, you know, start moving. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what it's going to look like when they suddenly declare, okay, everybody who got a shot in December and January, it's time for your next one. So we were kind of spoiled by the incredibly rapid development of these very effective vaccines. But if you remember back at the dawn of the pandemic, everybody smart was saying, not only do we need vaccines that work, but we will need antiviral treatments that can be given to people um, in the early days of their infection to ideally keep them out of the hospital and keep them alive. And so there was some news this week, Meg, on the um, apparently a little bit slower and maybe a little more difficult scientifically quest to develop such pills. Yeah, so Pfizer's CEO said he had just authorized the company to invest a billion dollars in trying to speed their antiviral drug to market. Um, They just started a phase two, three, um, and they're testing this antiviral, which is a protease inhibitor, in combination with ritonavir, uh, which is kind of interesting, um, in, in people who have COVID and are at high risk of being hospitalized to see if they can keep them out of the hospital. It would essentially be, you know, these two drugs twice a day for five days. And they're expecting they could have data by the end of the year and file for emergency use authorization. And this is a drug that they invented um, specifically, you know, to target the COVID virus. Um, It's really interesting. They've moved fairly quickly on this. And then you kind of compare it with with Merck and Molnupiravir, um, which is the drug that they licensed from Ridgeback Bio. 
was on the shelf um, and they've been moving through late stage clinical trials. And we just heard from Merck on Thursday morning that they expect data from phase three in the October timeframe. So we'll see how that goes. But I'm curious to know what you guys think about the pace of these two things. Does it look like Pfizer was able to move incredibly quickly? Are you surprised that Merck has not been able to move faster with this? Or, I mean, certainly it's not unusual for a normal drug development, but being that we're in a pandemic, are you surprised this has taken this long for them? I mean, overall, I think, and we, I think we've mentioned this before, is, you know, the pace of the development of these antivirals for COVID has been slow. I mean, probably slower than we anticipated. Um, and so that's disappointing, although I think the complexities of of developing an antiviral, you know, are such that, you know, it's just a hard thing to do, right? I think we sort of underestimate you know, the difficulty involved with, you know, basically essentially developing a pill that could, you know, knock down, kill the virus. Um, but you can also think about the incredible potential of of an antiviral like that, that, you know, in terms of how it would be used, uh, you know, and, and again, in the sort of in the context of the discussion we had about boosters and about people who were vaccinated, um, you know, potentially having breakthrough infections and, and getting sick and having to go to the hospital, like, you know, there's a there's a huge I mean, having an antiviral, a truly effective antiviral, that's a pill would really kind of change uh, the landscape uh, and I think the trajectory of of the pandemic and where it's going. So, like, you know, let's hope that they these are successful, ultimately, even if they are taking a long time. To your question, Meg, the Pfizer-Merck dynamic is kind of interesting because it does feel a little bit tortoise in the hair. I think, you know, Merck's decision to take a drug that, as you mentioned, was kind of off the shelf and, and seemed like it would have activity against coronaviruses broadly and move it into the clinic, they had to go through the iterative process. They tested it in patients who were already hospitalized or who were in later stages maybe of infection because that made the most sense. Just as we learned that if you actually want to do something about this virus, you have to get it very early. And so they've kind of had to iteratively move toward now where their data, um, you know, is, is expected in a few months. Whereas Pfizer took maybe arguably the tortoise route of waiting to develop a specific antiviral for SARS-CoV-2, which seemed like a slower pathway, but they got to benefit from watching everybody else learn the hard way about when the disease is most vulnerable to a potential antiviral. And so then they have the trial like the one that you described, which based on everything we know um, about this virus seems to make the most sense as a way to demonstrate that this drug actually has a benefit. So, I mean, I guess, I don't know, there's like a Harvard Business Review case study and all of this stuff, but it is really interesting. I totally thought you were going to say that Merck was the tortoise and Pfizer was the hare, but you flipped it on me. <laughs> we should wrap this up by just noting there there are other drugs in development for COVID, including one from Atia, which is partnered with Roche, um, which is sort of similar to these, these other drugs. And so there's a lot to watch in the space. The microbiome is a community of trillions of bacteria living inside each and every person's gut. For years, scientists have theorized that tinkering with that little ecosystem could be a way to treat a host of diseases, and biotech companies have raised billions of dollars in an effort to prove them right. But the reality is proving to be more complicated than many thought. Last week, a leading microbiome company called Ceres Therapeutics saw one of its most promising drugs fail decisively in a clinical trial, a setback that's reverberated across the entire microbiome space. That's Kate Sheridan, has been covering the whole microbiome saga for years, and she joins us now to talk about it. Kate, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So, Kate, maybe let's start with Ceres. What was the company trying to do, and where did things go wrong? So Ceres is trying to develop a microbe-based product to treat mild to moderate ulcerative colitis, which is probably caused by the immune system attacking the lining of a person's colon. 
Naturally, given the immune system's involvement, many of the drugs are currently available suppress a person's immune system, and this one, which was a cocktail of microbes derived from human donors, wouldn't have been. Where the trial went wrong, though, is still actually kind of an open question. The company is doing what amounts to a post-mortem pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics analysis on the trial data, which should wrap up later this year. So hopefully we'll have a better sense of what went wrong soon. So just to clarify what um, the human donors are donating, um, can you just like put it in clearer terms? Like, what is this drug? Yeah, sure. Um, the human donors are donating stool, primarily. They're, you know... Their poop. <laughs> we just wanted you to, Kate. We just wanted you to say poop. That's I'm happy all. to say poop. <laughs> no, no, I'm not just trying to get you to say poop on the podcast. I, I'm like obsessed with the microbiome. In fact, my RIP uh, first podcast with Stat Signal. The first episode was about the microbiome and oh, series yeah. therapeutics. Well, actually. exactly. They've been trying um, this for a while. Yeah, and it was you know before their first failure, which we'll get into. But uh, anyway, so thank you for explaining that because I just think it's really really fascinating. There's this approach, and all these different companies are trying to to use this to fix problems that are going wrong in people's guts. So after seeing this spectacular failure, what has been their you know sort of result for the rest of the field that's working in this space? So it sure seems like investors at least lost faith in the space. If we look just at their reactions, series stock dropped like a rock when the results came out, but so did Finch Therapeutics, which is another microbiome company, and even Kaleido Bioscience and Avello Biosciences, which are taking kind of very different approaches to series but could still be called microbiome companies theoretically, saw pretty sharp dips too. Microbiome CEOs that I talked to um, late last week told me that they're still keeping the faith, unsurprisingly. Uh, Series CEO Eric Schaff, for example, told me that I think that he was disappointed but not deterred. But, you know, I think that's kind of to be expected to a certain extent. So, Kate, you know, zooming out, uh, the earliest microbiome treatments were what are known as fecal transplants. Basically, you take stool from healthy people, you implant them into sick people. So how is what these companies are doing different from that? Right. So what Ceres and Finch and some other microbiome pioneers are doing isn't too far removed, actually, though it's definitely distinct. Um, Ceres and Finch still use donor stool like like FMTs do. But instead of testing them for pathogens and using the whole material, so to speak, they run them through their own CGMP processes. There are a variety of solvents involved. I think some of them use ethanol. That's getting too far into the weeds. Um, but the the main difference really is that FMTs are tested for pathogens. They're supposed to be tested for pathogens to be safe, but they aren't manufactured, quote unquote, like like Ceres and Finch Therapeutics are. Um, Ceres and other microbiome companies like Vedanta Biosciences also have um, so-called rationally designed micro- microbial products that they're testing, which should take poop entirely out of the equation. These products take just a handful of microbes, they grow them in a lab, and then they combine them together. So there's, other than the actual the source of the the microbes at first before they're grown and cultured in labs, that's the only real human component to it. So to that point, there's like a multitude of approaches that, that fit under the umbrella of microbiome. And so kind of getting back to that stock price reaction you mentioned earlier, is it fair to extrapolate what happened to Ceres as a you know demerit on the entire field? So I'm far from a microbiologist, but I'm actually not really sure as a as an observer. You know, this is an interesting question. On one hand, we don't know why series trial failed yet. It could be something particular to their drug, or it could be something more fundamental, like a fundamental misunderstanding that could affect anyone trying to manipulate the microbiome like like this. On the other hand, though, they did have a positive phase one, and the investors didn't really seem to discriminate between microbiome companies last week, like between Kaleido and Avello, 
Kaleido isn't using bacteria per se, but is trying to manipulate them. And Velo is using microbial vesicles, like little cellular storage containers. Those seem, on their surface at least, like fairly different approaches, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure why investors thought they were so related. They clearly did. And Kate, just to be clear, so, you know, I think what's interesting about series is that, you know, they've gone through this kind of setback before, right? They had in another indication where they had a failure, then they redid a study, they had a success. Now they've had a failure here in ulcerative colitis. So is it indication specific? I mean, is it, is there thinking that maybe just there are certain diseases of the gut that just maybe can't be approached with a microbiome based therapeutic while others can? I mean, that's the million dollar question, Adam. I think, I think that's still something they're trying to figure out. I mean, the one thing that I know um, Siri CEO Eric Schaft told me is that he thinks that the the data that's been collected from FMT-based studies and a lot of these indications is still pretty compelling. You know, we have evidence from those studies that suggest that microbial therapeutics should have reasonably wide applications. You know, I covered the other the other month a study uh, testing FMT in people who weren't responding to checkpoint inhibitors, and that seemed to have some kind of response. Now. The microbiome industry has had thoughts about FMT studies, um, not all of them positive, <laughs> but they do seem to think that it is an important proof of concept for, for their idea. So I really, I don't know if if um, it's going to work, but they seem to think that that's evidence that it, it should or it could at least. I've always found that debate between like, do you need the whole stool or do you, can you just isolate the active ingredient in the stool and use that? That is like the most fascinating thing to me about this whole microbiome thing is there's something magical about poop and it's like whole form that is better than the drug industry perspective that you've got to isolate the active ingredient and use that. I mean, that just fascinating to me. It's completely um, fascinating. Yeah. So so tell us, you know, what's next for the field? Like, are we going to see some more big readouts soon that could potentially swing sentiment in the area? So we're definitely going to see some more readouts soon, I believe. And I might be out of date on this, um, but I did try and check. I believe we should be seeing um, some data from a study on uh, Vedanta's product for um, combination with checkpoint inhibitors. That's, again, another indication of some FMT data. I believe 4D Pharma is also going to be wrapping up a clinical trial in asthma sometime in the third quarter. Both of those are immune system-related indications, so maybe that'll be um, a bolster, I suppose, to microbiome companies if they're positive. But I was talking to um, to Chris Howerton over at Jeffries about this, and he brought up the point that in order for sentiment to swing wildly positive again, the data that investors see it's going to have to be pretty convincing and i don't know if um this data is going to be convincing enough i don't think anyone knows that yet so what will swing the the sentiment i don't know um we'll see what we'll see what happens okay thanks for joining us today thank you that does it for another episode of the read out loud Thank you to senior producer Hyacinth Empanado for producing this week's episode. Our other senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and who you think should play George Church. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.